Stand by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. So we're back with part two of my conversation with Peter Bogdanovich about the music of the 1930s and 40s and 50s, torch songs in particular something that we were both obsessive about. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's you heard Peter's gift for mimicry. Uh, if you heard him do Dean and Jerry uh, when we performed, it's easy to remember. He did both Dean and Jerry. Uh, he was a wicked mimic. And, and uh, one of the things that makes him like a, a truly great mimic is that not only could he do people whose voices you knew, um, but Peter could do the voice of somebody who you'd never heard and you knew immediately, oh my God, that's exactly what that guy sounded like. Uh, an authenticity that was, you know, it was, so for instance, he, he, used to, he used to do a mimic of, of, of um, Howard Hawks, the director Howard Hawks. Now, you know, legendary as Hawks is, there's not a lot of film of him out there. There's, uh, there's a limited amount. And uh, so he's not a famous voice. But as soon as Peter would go into his Howard Hawks, you knew you were sitting with that guy. Um, the, the only other, the, the actor who does that, I thought was the, the most brilliant at it, was Daniel Day-Lewis doing Abraham Lincoln. I'm absolutely sure that's who Lincoln was and what he sounded like. I don't know why, but that's the extent of, you know, the mastery of people who have this talent. Um, you know, strangely, though, the only person who Peter never did an impression of uh, was Orson Welles who he was very close to, uh, and I'm not sure why. I certainly never asked him to. Um, was it perhaps he couldn't do it? I don't think so. I think that there was something about Wells that was very sensitive and touching to Peter, uh, and that's not what he felt. Uh, it's not, not how he felt towards him. Um, not, not that I'm saying he, you know, he was being... Uh, sardonic towards others who he was very good at doing, but Wells was off limits. Uh, you can get a sense of his uh, um, feelings for Wells and their, and their feeling for each other if you get a book called This is Orson Wells, which is Peter's conversations with Wells uh, and indispensable for your, for your film library. This is Orson Wells. Um, there's a moment in it where uh, Peter says something that a annoys Wells and something that he thinks Wells thinks is pretentious. And Wells says to him, well, that's what you say if you're Pierre de Bogdanovich. And I always thought this was very funny. And I, I asked Peter about it. And he said, oh, that was Orson sending me up. Uh, and so I took just a joke to sometimes when I, when I would call Peter, I'd say Pierre. This is Pierre de Bogdanovich. And he, he loved it. So he started calling me Raimundo. And for... 20 years, uh, the way our phone conversations always began was uh, Peter would pick up the phone. Now, he picked up, a, it was a conference, uh, a, a, you know, a speakerphone, I mean, and um, he would kind of off mic. He wouldn't say hello. He'd pick up the phone and he'd say, 
Yeah. And then I'd say, Pierre, it's Ramundo. And he'd say, Ramundo, darling, how's your picture coming? Not, not your movie, not your project, not how's your life. How's your picture coming? I always loved that because th- this is the world uh, that, that a guy like Peter lived in. As he once said, some of us live 24 frames per second. Um, that, was, that was the essence of it. How's your picture coming? He worked until the last months of his life. He was always planning a movie. Uh, he, he was always trying to get something else going. And he, you know, he kept going. He was making documentaries. By the end, he made a wonderful doc about Buster Keaton. Uh, he was planning a movie about George and Ira Gershwin uh, when, he, when, when he died. Uh, so, you know, he, he, he was an inspiration to me in that sense. And uh, he'll always be Pierre. <laughs> and uh, with that, I will uh, let you listen to part two of the conversation I had back in 2002 about the making of our CD, Monday Morning Quarterbacks. Well, let's talk about the French one, shall we? Yeah. I, this was a song, I Wish You Love, that, first of all, I didn't know was a French song, which is absurd. It's a, it's a very famous French song by a wonderful composer. I just never knew it. And you showed it to me and sang it to As I recall, you brought it over. I was amazed that it was in French. And then you said, yes, and it's a much better lyric in French than the translation. And as I was playing it, you started translating it on the spot. And I was so taken with that performance, that very kind of solemn, quiet, spoken word translation. And I thought, this is how to do the song. So it's now on the album. It's not called I Wish You Love, and I can't speak French, so what's it called? Que reste-t-il de nos amours? Yes. Where are they now, all our loves, something like that. Uh, it's hard to be, remember. It's Charles Trenet wrote it. Who also wrote the song that uh, Somewhere Beyond the Sea is... Uh, La Mer. Yeah, La Mer. And he wrote, uh, anyway, he wrote a lot. He was a very popular French singer. Yeah. I actually saw him in the 70s mm. at the Olympia in Paris, and he jumped around the stage. He was like almost like a French Eddie Cantor in terms of the way he performed it. He wasn't romantic, uh, but he um, but he was a wonderful songwriter. And Coreste t'il de nos amours? I wish you love. Uh, it just the, the the English translation is just not anywhere near as interesting as the fr- original French. Ce soir, le vent qui frappe à ma porte Me parle des amours mortes Du vent, le feu qui s'étend Ce soir, c'est une chanson d'automne Dans la maison qui frissonne Et je pense aux jours lointains Que reste-t-il de nos amours Que reste-t-il de ces beaux jours Une photo, vieille photo De ma jeunesse 
Que reste-t-il des billets doux, des mois d'avril, des rendez-vous en souvenir que me poursuit sans cesse? Bonheur fané, cheveux au vent, baisers volés, rêves émouvants. Que reste-t-il de tout cela? Dites-le-moi. Un petit village, un vieux clocher, un paysage. Si bien caché et dans un nuage, le cher visage de mon passé. It's almost more of an impressionistic song, yeah, isn't it? it is. It's uh, that line in the, I guess it ends the verse, um, the, uh, somewhere in the snow, an image of my youth. Yeah, actually, you liked it when I said snow, and the original is the cloud. In the, in a cloud and we should have yeah. kept it snow. Yeah. You always liked that. But uh, that was the way to do it. And I think most people don't know that that's a French song. Mm. So they're listening to I Wish You Love in the background and saying, why am I talking? telling them what it says in, in French. But it's it, also French is such a, you know, I don't speak French really well enough except, you know, to get around a hotel or restaurant. But it's such a great language to sing it, like Italian, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so beautiful. Ce soir, it's just, you know, it's no coincidence that, uh, that, that it's such a melodic language. Mm -hmm. Italian too, it's, it's fun to sing. But you're in doing the song in uh, first in the translated French, which I think was such a nice way to set it to up. set it up. And then once you break into the actual French, which I think sounds superb, uh, it 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 takes a melody that you know if you love this sort of music, you know that song. Yeah, but you know it is this sort of. Corny song. Corny kind of. It's. I it's, wish you bluebirds right. in the spring. Yeah, in July, a, summer, a lemonade. Like a lemonade, yeah. To cool you in some leafy glade. That's not really. It couldn't be more. Not a good. It could lyric. not have been more Americanized. <clears throat> That's not a good lyric. Yeah. To cool you in some leafy glade. Even Danielle doesn't like. That. No. That's... <laughs> uh, but the French is a great lyric. Just great lyric, all of it. Anyway, that's how we did that one. Mamzelle has always been a song I've liked. Now there's a great fake French song. Yeah, right. Written by a director. He wrote the tune, not yeah. the lyric, interestingly. Edmund Goulding, director of Grand Hotel. And Nightmare Alley. And Nightmare Alley and a few other rather well-known films. And he wrote that tune. Da, 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 da. A small cafe, Mademoiselle, our rendezvous, Mademoiselle. The violins were warm and sweet, and so were you, Mademoiselle. 
And as the night danced by, a kiss became a sigh. Your lovely eyes seemed to sparkle, just like wine does. No heart ever yearned the way that mine does for you. And yet, I know too well. Someday you'll say goodbye. Then violins will cry, and so will I, Mademoiselle. But that's it. That's a great uh, to me. As I said, it's a, it's an old genre of like. Uh, fake French tunes, you know, fake European songs, the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Yeah, so the, the last time I saw Paris. Right, yeah. Americans striving for that French you know. thing. And and Mamzelle is a song that walks the tightrope of almost being too corny, too insipid. And It is a bit, but it works. Yeah, if you, if you can do it with just the right spirit of you have to do it genuine. You can't kid it. No. But you can't let it get out of control either. No. Yeah. I, I, I love Mamzelle, and I even like the way they spell it. Yeah, with the apostrophe. Yeah. Z-E-L-L. Mamzelle. Mamzelle, yeah. Yeah. He's clearly an American guy who fell for a French girl. Yeah. And she dumps him. Yeah. And he's in a Mamzelle hotel room. Mamzelle will cry, and so will I. It's wonderful. And he's he's in a hotel room in the West Forties somewhere. Yes, with a bottle, wishing he she he was over there in the Champs Elysees. <laughs> That's what the, those pop songs did, you know. That great line we, we talked about that great line from Noel Coward's uh, "Private Lives" when she says, "Extraordinary how potent cheap music is." I think she meant Mamzelle. I yeah. think she did. Yeah. yeah, that's a potent piece of cheap music. Ooh. That's just great. Once I laughed when I heard you saying that I'd be playing solitaire, uneasy in my easy chair. It never entered my mind. Once you told me I was mistaken That I'd awaken with the sun And order orange juice for one It never entered my mind You Scratch my back myself. Once you warned me that if you scorned me, I'd sing a lonely prayer again and wish that you were there again to get into. It never entered 
my mind. And then there's what was the other one? It never entered my mind is one of the great Rodgers and Hart songs. Yeah, nothing, nothing cheap about it. Never entered my mind. But it's a it's, great song. It's just got that. It, well, it's that thing that Rodgers and Hart have, which is that Larry Hart wrote these clever, witty, very New York hip kind of lyrics, and Rodgers was writing these very beautiful, lilting melodies. Mm -hmm. And also, a, there's a, always a touch of um, the solemn in Rogers' melodies that I think offsets Hart's kind of um, flippancy. Yeah, and that's what makes the, their combination so heartbreaking. I think. Yeah, yeah. you know, and or I'd, or I'd wake up with the sun and order orange juice for one. It's not, how do you put that in a love song? Yeah, but it works. Yeah, and you're right, and that's why I always felt that Rogers and Hammerstein, although more popular, weren't as interesting because there was no contrast. Hammerstein was serious and so was Rogers. They were closer together in, in, in temperament. Than, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It never entered my mind is also one of those songs that I think where where did he get the idea for it? It's such a Larry Hart lyrics always seem to come to me through the back door. Yeah, they that's true. Peculiar idea. Just like I didn't know what time it was, which we thought of doing but didn't ultimately include. Yeah, we didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a more. It's not a really. A, it's not really a torch song, strictly speaking. He, he seems to triumph in that song. Yeah. He tried to make it sad, and we couldn't quite figure out how to do it. Yeah, I think we did record that, didn't we? We may have. Yeah. We recorded, and Mark said, "Throw that out." Yeah, it failed the Lipsky. <laughs> yeah, the Lipsky test. Yeah. <laughs> did we do any other Rogers and Hart? No, that's the only. Yeah, no, we did "Easy to Remember" with Dean and. Oh, Jerry. that's of course. That's the. But Mark that wasn't did. us. Dean and Jerry did. Dean and Jerry did "Easy to Remember." Which isn't the typical Rods and Hart song either. Yeah, it's more conventional. But it was written for a movie, yeah. as opposed to a Chevalier. Bing Crosby. Bing I think it was from Mississippi or something. Mm -hmm. Their show tunes are the ones that are so hip. Yeah, yeah. Because again, he wrote. You know, like we almost did "Glad to Be Unhappy," but I think that really Sinatra kind of owns that song. Mm -hmm. Look at yourself. If you had a sense of humor, you would laugh to beat the band. Look at yourself. Do you still believe the rumor that romance is simply grand? Since I took it right on the chin, I have lost that bright toothpaste grin. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Why didn't we do that? Let's see Sinatra. Yeah, to Sinatra, but we'll you know we'll do it time. in our second, our second album. Although I like the idea of the second album being the the warm and friendly. I think we should do it. Give yeah. give the people a break. Yeah. Although I don't know that our audience will buy it. No, I th I think I think they may be disappointed. They like to be sad. And then, there's and then like there's I'll Be Seeing You, which, as I told you, I, I knew the, the woman who was married to the man who wrote the lyric, Irving yeah. Kale. Uh, he died very young, and that was his sort of his gift to her. He never lived to hear that song become a hit. I'll Be Seeing You was written for a flop Broadway show, and I think it was called Step This Way. Isn't that a great name for a flop show? Step this way. Step yes. this way. Five performances, you know. <laughs> uh, and that that song, and also another song he wrote, "I Can uh, I Can Dream Can't I," came from. Which is another famous song. Yeah, and he did not live to know that those were going to be his legacy, but uh, but his wife Alice Kale did, and and I uh, I grew up knowing the song from that. No, and then I and then I I think I foisted it upon you. Well, I knew the song, but yeah. I didn't think I could bear to sing it because it's so sad. Yeah. And it had certain 
associations for me that were very emotional, so I didn't know if I could get through it. But it's a beautiful song. That central part, that middle part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That park across the way, all that. I don't remember it now, but anyway. That's another song that it, there seems to not be anything sad in the message of the song, and yet it breaks your heart. Because underlying it all is a it's a song of a ghost or something. It's a it song is, of it's a forgotten... Like, it's something that's passed and yeah. something that's gone. But it's a, I'll always think of you that way. I'll see you in the morning sun and when the night is new. Mm -hmm. I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. Great stuff. Well, no, you know, we, we actually mentioned but didn't talk about this, a song that I think is a novel, which is... Um, uh, Ho the great Hoagie Carmichael's, uh, and he wrote the words and music to it. I get along without yeah. you very well. That's a great song. Yeah, and a strange form, <laughs> uh, a, an almost meandering structure to it. And I, I always think of it. Isn't as, it a uh, a b c a? No, it isn't. It has a, it has an elongated phrase, I think, after uh, uh, after the first a. Um, of course I do, except -da 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 -da. yeah, that's -da 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 -da. right. Of course I do, but I get along without you very well. It, it, it's an interesting, um, it's almost, I'd have to sit down and study it. I think that it's probably a little longer, too. Like Harold Arlen uh, frequently wrote songs that were not really 32 bars. They were just, had a little extra section here and there. Um, to it has a, it's a great song. That, yeah, yeah, and it has details in it that I think are so, um, that's why I always think of it as kind of a work of, really a work of writing. You know. Brilliant, because it, it, it sort of goes against what it's saying. I get along without you very well, of course I do, and of course he doesn't at all. Except. Except. And then it's a list song, yeah. Except when soft rains fall and drip from leaves, then I recall the warmth of being nestled, struggle where is in your arms, of course I do. But I get along without you very It's It's a guy having a conversation with himself. Which is paid off with that last line, should I phone once more? No. No, yes. it's best that I stick to my tune. I get along without you. It's a terrific song. It really is a novel. You can, you can sort of picture the whole guy's life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely a middle-of-the-night song. I get along without you very well. Of course I do. Except when soft rains fall And a drip from leaves Then I recall The thrill of being sheltered In your arms Of course I do But I get along without you very well I've forgotten you just like I should of course I have except to hear your name or someone's laugh that sounds the same but I've forgotten you just like I should What a guy 
What a fool am I To think my breaking heart Could kid the moon What's in store Shall I phone just once more No, it's best That I stick to my tune I get along without you Very well Of course I do Except perhaps in spring But I must never think of spring For that would surely break my heart in two Sinatra does it extraordinarily well. I have a record, I have a video of him doing it for, at, in Monaco with Grace Kelly introducing him. He does that and he does it late in the, in the night. He sits down in the stool and sings that, and it just breaks your heart with it. A, a surprising number of your movies are titled for songs. Yeah. Well, they have such good titles, song titles. Well, it's so. Paper Moon. Paper, well, Paper Moon was, it's only a Paper Moon, but yes. Yeah. They All song. Laughed. They All Laughed is... Uh, at Long Last Love. Yeah. It's a song. Yeah. Um, in fact, the movie that you made with um, River Phoenix... The thing is, called love is almost the title of a song. Well, there is was a song. Was it supposed to be called this the, thing called love? The, the, no, we had like there. There turns out we looked it up. There's about 15 songs called the thing called love, a thing called love, this right. thing called love. So we ended up with the thing called love. I don't know. That was a big decision. What it was going to be the uh, this right. <clears throat> But you know, there's so many great song titles um, that it's a pity that you can't have a movie because it's great. Like she's funny that way. I always thought was a great title mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. a, for a movie. Um, that's one I've always planned to use right. at some point. But you go through the list of all the songs that that this funny world is another good one. Mm -hmm. We almost did that. What a difference a day makes. Yeah. Yeah. It almost sounds like the plot of a kind of a... It a is kind the plot. Of a late 80s sort of high concept comedy. Yeah. What if a day was subtracted from, etc. With Bill Murray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do, you do, I, do, do you yeah. do what I do, which is uh, just bring in a lot of music to the editing room and start putting it against the picture? Oh, I, yeah. I can't even begin to find any sense in what I've done unless I put old music behind I've it. done that I did it on my I did it on um, on the last picture show for the first time when I which I which I cut myself <clears throat> and we had you know in those, those days we was working on a movieola which makes so much noise you know and uh, I had ma 35 millimeter magnetic tr uh, uh, prints made of all these songs that I <clears throat> picked from the 50s, from the, actually from the 40s and early 1950-51. And I would finish cutting the scene 
and then I would put the music with it and see if it worked. <clears throat> Often the idea was to do it as a kind of counterpoint, you know, because I always felt if you have a suspense scene, it's kind of great to have song playing in the background that's not suspenseful at all, right. you know. Um, just a, a, a kind of do -do 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 kind of up tempo song, you know. And I, I did that a lot in, in Picture Show and Paper Moon, playing against the scene. Mm -hmm. and, but the music gives you such a, because the music is of the moment, of the period that you're, that you're dealing with, or around that period, it just gi it gives you that, something that, is, that you can't get from new music written for it. It just gives you, a, it evokes the moment. And especially when there, when it's uh, it's ambience, when you you know it's coming from a tinny radio. Like yeah, radio or a, or a jukebox or a, mm -hmm. so it's it's source. Yeah, source. Yeah. And not played. It gives a feeling. I found I did it on my very first picture on Targets, but I couldn't afford to have any decent music, so I just had some lousy records somebody let me use for five grand. Mm -hmm. uh, but I noticed that if you don't push it in front, if you just keep it in the back, sort of a source, and not loud source, it gives a feeling of verisimilitude that you, that you, you're just unbeatable. Because it feels like there's a life going on beyond the scene. That, that there's a life that has nothing to do with the scene. Right. And that makes the scene seem more real. Mm -hmm. Than if you have music that's written for the scene to underscore the scene. Mm -hmm. I've, never, I've never done that. I've tried not to do that. I think I have done it once or twice. You mean have a full score written? Have a score. I've never done that, but I've had bits of incidental music written when I thought the movie didn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, music's very... Um, it helps. It forgives a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Things that don't hang together suddenly... Suddenly like it works, yeah. yes, because the music's doing it. The music is the glue for it. Yeah. Had so many movies, if you were... So many movies in the last 20 years, if you subtract the music... You can't watch it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first thing I, I remember realizing, it, I mean, it, it, the potent combination of music and film is a great way to cheat uh, uh, your own, you know, for your own talent or lack of it. You know, when I was first making films, I found that if I had a, an interesting idea but a poor soundtrack, muddy or confused, nobody cared. Didn't matter how nicely shot it was. But if I shot anything and put a bunch of music behind it, it played. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a funny way to cheat. Music can make. Film. Oh, music's a big cheater. Yeah, it can it can sell film, but film can't exist without something for people to hang on to. Yeah, but yeah. that's absolutely true. That's why the, you know, it's such an, it's so ironic that the first. 30 years of film were called the silent era when they weren't anything. They were not silent. They were filled with music. Filled yeah. with music, but they just happened to be live and it's ephemeral because it wasn't attached to the film. But God, I mean, they always had music playing. It was either a piano or sometimes a 50, 100 piece orchestra. And as you know, they also had sound effects in the silent era. They had people behind the screen making the sound right, right. on the big pictures, you know? Horses' hooves and yelling and all that. There's a whole genre of musician, people who could watch a movie and play, improvise along with it. They don't think they had to study it. No. They sat, they watched the screen, they did what, you know. Whatever. Yeah, there was a great fellow at the Museum of Modern Art when I first used to go to the Museum of Modern Art when I was a child, my father, 
Arthur Kleiner. He was brilliant. He'd just sit down and play these wonderful things that, you know, really evoke a mood and a period. Uh, I don't think he had a score. Yeah. I think he just played, like you say. Yeah. the piano solo, my, my, my intermission. It's beautiful. Piece. Thank you. I wrote that for my first film, Cafe Society, my first feature. Uh, and there's a lyric too, it pops up in the movie somewhere. It's sort of a, um, uh, it, it, it's sort of a, a piece of, it was designed to be a piece of movie music to make it feel like big city 50s movies were, a kind of a New York confidential it does that. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I wanted it to. What I wanted it to be. I I always admired above all David Raxon's Laura music, Laura and Bad and the Beautiful. Um, yeah, a, a lush and very uh, and and very at the same time very kind of uh, cynical tone to what he writes. Edgy. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't afford David Raxon. <laughs> So you got you. So I did it, yeah. That's a beautiful tune. It's a beautiful tune and it really does evoke it. And you know, you didn't tell me what it was. Remember I said, I listened to it a couple of times and I said, God, it's very New York theater world, kind of going right. down to Broadway and seeing a play and having dinner before or after. It's yeah, like, I was funny. A nightclub, it's a nightclub feel. Yeah, it's, yeah, nightlife, yeah. Nightlife, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was listening to it the other day and I thought, <laughs> you know, I... I truly overplay it, and it's sort of the kind of song that needs to be done that way. There's no being subtle with, with that kind of piece. It, it's almost like it would, you know, I, I, Ferranti and Teicher should do a big forehand thing of it. It's that kind of, you know, it's a, it's a melodrama song. Well, you're dealing with a big city. You feel it feels like New York or Paris or London. It doesn't seem like you know Bridgeport. I mean, there's, yeah. it's it's definitely. <laughs> It's definitely a big city yeah. feel to it. That needs the needs the forte. I yeah. guess, isn't that what you call it? Well, I went to California after we had a after we had a, um, a final version of it, and I played it for an old friend of mine, for Sybil Shepherd, and um, she thought it was so good that um, that she thought that Monday Morning Quarterback kind of summed up the whole album in a way, because it's it's all really looking back on something. And um, it's all looking back on something and wishing you could fix it. Mm-hmm. And so she, she thought we should begin with that cut and maybe have a shot of us somehow dressed up, you know, and holding a football. Nobody could possibly be more incongruous with a football than me. Because I, I not only hate football, <laughs> although I shot a movie, a, a football comedy, you know, for television for Disney, but I haven't had no idea what the rules were. I said, "What do we do here? What are you guys doing? When is what is it when you all get together? The huddle, okay, do that." 
You know, it was like that. Is there something you can do that's interesting? Well, there's an end run. Let me see that. Right. You know, because I had no idea what it is. I mean, baseball I could do. Mm-hmm. Not that I can play baseball, but I did once hit a home run in camp. It was when they told me to keep my eyes open. Because I used to go like this when the ball would come, I'd close my eyes. And hoping they wouldn't hit hoping you. Hoping yeah. it wouldn't hit me. <laughs> so he said, you have to watch the ball. Oh. <laughs> and I actually hit one, but that was my one moment of glory as a baseball player. But with football, you know, no. So she suggested I hold a football and look, you know, kind of dapper with a football. Yeah, that, I, think it's, I think it's a funny a swell idea. idea you know. Well, the other thing was she, we were sort of kidding the album a little bit, and she took it very seriously. Yeah, I, we, we, the title as directors unplugged, which I think is, it's I think is a good a title. title and, but I guess she thought it was it was too um, kidding. It she yeah. thought it was kidding it, and she thought the album really worked. Um, of course, she maybe she's partial because we used to go together. But but uh, she thought it, that the album had a real mood that it, that it evoked, and that we should go with that. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, it's if it's if it's if it's a sad song, go with it. You know. Like what John Ford said to John Wayne about playing a sentimental scene. If it's East Lynn, play it. You know, East Lynn was an old Victorian melodrama, right. like way down east. You know, if it's East, he, he, Wayne told me this. He said Ford said, if you, you know, Duke, you'll get a lot of scenes in your life that are sentimental. But don't play against it. Don't do it with your tongue in your cheek and play against it. You know, if it's East Lynn, play it. So that's where we're going to end uh, this conversation that I had with Peter. I, I like ending it on a John Ford, John Wayne story. For some reason, that just feels sort of appropriate. Um, you know, uh, just a few years after we recorded this CD, uh, Peter moved to L.A., and so, by chance, uh, did I. And uh, we saw each other in L.A. quite a bit. We didn't really play and sing as much as we used to, but we, we did. Um, but over the years, we, we kept in touch. We talked a lot on the phone, and we went to dinner quite a bit. And the last time I saw him was in October 2021, just about three months uh, or so before he passed. And um, I like this story because it's it's so Peter, and it's it it so epitomizes his his wit and his philosophy and the way he approached life. Uh, we were we, we went to the restaurant, and the table wasn't ready. So they said, could you just sit for a while outside? We're, get, we're getting your table ready. And we said, okay, that's fine. So we're sitting in the foyer of the restaurant, and uh, somebody notices Peter, and they start coming over. Uh, and this was a fairly common occurrence. Peter was a, a public figure. People recognized him. Uh, and the guy comes over, and he says, excuse me, are you Peter Bogdanovich? And Peter said, yes, I am. And the guy smiled, and he said, I just want to tell you how much I admire your work in The Sopranos. Not your life's work, not your filmmaking, not your journalism, but your work in The Sopranos, where Peter, of course, played uh, a shrink. And Peter just took it with the, in his stride, and he said, well, that's very kind of you to say. I very much appreciate it. And the guy walked away, and Peter turned to me, and he said, well, 
it's better than nothing. Uh, Peter said something once that stuck in my head, and uh, this is how I'm going to leave you, uh, because maybe it'll stick in your head, too. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful piece of advice. Uh, I asked him once, you know, I said, you had a lot of ups and downs in your life, yet you still, you know, you still believe in your work, and you push on, and, you know, how do you do it? And Peter said, well, we can't go backwards, so we must go forwards. And uh, whenever I've felt stuck and whenever I've felt not quite sure of, you know, when or, or even if I should push on, I always hear Peter say that. And I say to myself, well, can't go backwards, so we must go forwards. Uh, so, Peter, I prefer to think you didn't just disappear. Uh, I prefer to think that you just went forwards. chestnut trees and the wishing well I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day in everything that's bright and gay I'll always think of you that way I'll find you in the morning sun and when the night is new I'll be looking at the moon but I'll be seeing you But I'll be seeing 